was the purpose of God's Old Testament law for Israel? And how did the Apostle Paul communicate this to Jewish people on his first missionary journey to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe? Dr. John Whitcomb unfolds the answers to those questions for us today on Encounter God's Truth, a weekly media outreach from Whitcomb Ministries, sharing timeless truths for changing times. You can always learn more about our ministry online at whitcombministries.org. We're in the midst of an ongoing series in the book of Acts called Acts, Witness of the Early Church. You can hear the programs from all five volumes in the study when you visit sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb. There you'll find more than 1,300 messages by Dr. Whitcomb. Dr. Whitcomb spent six years at the Independent Fundamental Bible Conference held at Middletown Bible Church in Middletown, Connecticut, teaching on every verse of the book of Acts. And he also co-authored a commentary on Acts with Pastor George Zeller of Middletown Bible Church, which we make available freely on our website. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd, inviting you to stay tuned for principles from the book of Acts that can impact our service for Christ right here today. Dr. Whitcomb shares them with us, opening his Bible first to Acts chapter 13, verse 42. God's Word is true from the beginning to the end. Let's listen now as it's explained to us by Dr. John Whitcomb. I greet you once again, dear friends, as we begin our afternoon session on part two of Paul's great missionary journey into what is today the land of Turkey. And we saw this morning in part one how Paul, together with Boom, Barnabas, plus who else? John Mark launched out from Antioch through Seleucia down across the island, the great island of Cyprus, and then moved into a more hostile, dangerous enemy territory, at which point, of course, John Mark defects and goes home to his mother in Jerusalem. They continue up to Antioch, Pisidia. We've seen from Antioch to Antioch here already, and there a magnificent, powerful exposition of the Old Testament with special emphasis, of course, on the prophecies of Jesus and his death and resurrection, and how the Jews, especially the Jews, were enraged by this obvious intrusion into their monopoly of approach to God and showed the Gentiles they didn't have to become Jews to be acceptable to the Lord. Now, it's hard for us today to understand, to comprehend, friends, and I need to try to paint a little picture here of sympathy, if I may, if I can put it that way. Consider the situation the Jews faced in these synagogues. For already 1,400 years, God had insisted that the law of Moses be observed. Not that it was ever intended to be a means of salvation, but a means of instruction, as uh, Dr. Houghton pointed out earlier this afternoon, a way of life. Not a way of salvation, but a way of life to demonstrate God's ways, God's will, God's holiness, God's righteousness in a corrupt, demonic, depraved world system. And really, it uh, served with powerful effectiveness to attract literally millions of Gentiles who came to these synagogues and saw a pure worship system that was infinitely superior to the corrupt, horrible, demonic systems of worship and false religions that they were more acquainted with. So uh, God was uh, spreading light as to his holiness and his righteousness and what a righteous life is like. Now, all of a sudden, the Apostle Paul appears in their synagogue, 
and says, in effect, and they got the message correctly, you don't have to obey the law to be what? To be saved. And that, of course, created an enormous revulsion within their conscience and their mind. God had never come from heaven like he did it on the Mount Sinai with fire and the smoke and uh, spectacular sign miracles to confirm uh, the law that he gave to Moses. But uh, these men had for hundreds of years been progressively uh, blinded to the basic realities of the Old Testament system. What was the purpose of those animal sacrifices in the temple? Not to take away sin, Hebrews 10, but to do what? To cover the sinner from immediate judgment from a holy God in whose presence they came with their sacrifices and to uh, guarantee that they were still his people, but it never took away their sin, was never intended to, but it was effective within those limits. Just like when they came out of Egypt, God said, when my destroying angel sees the blood on the lintel of the doorposts, I will what? I will pass over you. Now, it didn't save anybody. It just protected them from immediate destruction. And, of course, for centuries, 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 the Jews horribly distorted the whole program of God completely misunderstood the sacrificial system. As you see in Isaiah 1, they'd bring their sacrifices and sort of thought they were doing God a favor and uh, earning merit with him, and that was an abomination. They just did not understand their own Mosaic law with the sacrificial provision at all. And, of course, the Lord Jesus was crucified by them because they were told by him, you are infinitely wrong. You are of your father, the devil. And furthermore, you have to what? Repent. You have to have a profound, you have to have a total transformation of your perspectives on who God is, what he's like, what he requires, how to approach him, and yourself as hopelessly sinful. You have a complete revolution of your thinking. And that offended them deeply, shocked them horribly, and they crucified him. You see the same reaction, friends, everywhere. I mean, uh, even to this very day, of course, as the gospel goes on and on, step by step, across Europe, and then centuries later across to America and around the whole world, uh, Jews to this very hour struggle with these issues as they're told about uh, the necessity of coming to Jesus by faith and that their system of worship does not save them. And so... Uh, we say, well, now, Lord, uh, how, how can we help Jewish people today? How can we reach them? If we love them, as God tells us to, if they're God's chosen people as they really are, how can we help them? Well, the worst possible thing you can do is what's now being done since the Holocaust. Uh, this new volume that Dr. Houghton uh, suggested to you earlier this afternoon, Israel and the Church, Subtitle, The Origin and Effects of Replacement Theology by Ronald DePros, Dean of the Italian Bible Institute in Rome. This is his doctoral dissertation in Belgium. A magnificent analysis of what the Bible says and how Christian leaders from the beginning of church history, really, 
all the way back to the post-apostolic fathers, were confused about the identity of the Jew and how to reach him for the Lord. Well, you know what happened when six million Jews died in the Holocaust in Germany? There was a drastic change of thinking on the part of uh, ecumenical liberal theologians in the World Council of Churches, and then the Roman Catholic Church as well, in which there was a profound sense of shame and horror that uh, Jews had been persecuted and attacked, and Christian uh, tradition had uh, implemented this, and in fact, that even Martin Luther hated the Jews and actually in his final days said, let's kill them. Hitler quoted from Luther in doing that. You know what's happened since the Holocaust? Those liberals and those Catholic leaders have said officially, we now recognize that uh, Israel is a special program of God. But God has a separate way to save Jews. They don't have to believe in Jesus. God has his own program for them for salvation. We have nothing to do with the Jews anymore, ever. We're not going to fight them. We're not going to kill them. We're not going to persecute them. But we're not going to tell them about Jesus. They don't need him. They have a different program. So you see, friends, replacement theology has now taken a new twist in which God's people, chosen people, the Jews, for whom the Apostle Paul said he was willing to die, are being set aside completely and finally. I say, well, Lord, there must be an invisible enemy of Israel. There is, and his name is Satan. He hates Israel. He hates Israel's God. He hates God's specific program for the coming kingdom through Israel. And uh, we say, well, now, that became very obvious to the Apostle Paul and his companions, his fellow workers, right from the beginning of their ministry. They went to the Jew first as much as they possibly could, even throughout the whole book of Acts. They would say, we're going to turn to the Gentiles. You Jews uh, hate the message. You hate the Messiah. And we're going to leave you. But uh, every place they went, they went to the Jew first again and again, over and over and over. Today, of course, as you know, Pastor Zeller has written a paper showing that it's impossible for all kinds of reasons to do that today. You can't always, every time you preach the gospel, find a Jew and preach to the Jew first. But friends, remember, uh, it's not the Jew last either. And it's not Gentiles only either. It's Jew and Gentile as God gives you and me opportunity to reach these dear people for the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? Turn with me now to Acts 13. Acts 13, verse 46. When the Jews rejected the message of Paul and Barnabas about Christ, it says, then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, and it was. I mean, over and over again, I mean, Jesus made that clear, didn't he? Over and over, he said to the Samaritan woman, salvation, you don't know anything, you Samaritans, theologically. Salvation is of the what? Of the Jews. Just like he said to the Syrophoenician woman, the message that I'm here to bring is for the children, see, that the children might be saved, the Jews. They received it first, yes, 
But seeing that you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Now, never again, apparently, did he ever go back to that synagogue. That doesn't mean he never went to the Jews anymore. Be careful on that one. He meant this synagogue has officially, publicly, openly repudiated the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and will never come back here again. Okay? For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And you know, you turn back to Isaiah, and how many times does Isaiah say that kind of thing? Not just in Isaiah 42, verse 6, but uh, listen to Isaiah 48 as well. Thou hast heard and see all this, and will you not declare it? I have showed you new things from this time, even hidden things that thou dost not know. And it tells about how Jesus, the Messiah, will take the light to the Gentile world. Yes, to the whole human race. 49.6. It is a light thing, a small thing, that you should be my servant, Jesus. He's speaking to his son to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel, I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, friends, right from the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant, God had made it clear that the Gentile world was to be the ultimate target of the message of salvation. Through your seed, all the nations of the world, the tribes, the peoples of the world will be blessed. That was never a problem in the Old Testament. But the Jews became blinded increasingly to the fact that they were merely instruments to reach Gentiles. They weren't the end of everything. They weren't the ultimate final target of God's love. They were an instrument to reach the Gentile world, and they were colossal failures in outreaching to the world, were they not? In fact, I think one of the worst missionaries on record was Jonah, who was sent by God to the Gentile world, Nineveh no less, the setter of the most hated empire in the ancient world, notoriously cruel. And his desperate desire for those who heard his message was what? That they would reject it and be destroyed by God. The worst missionary on record. Almost as bad, I think, was um, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, who, of course, left the promised land and went uh, fled because of the famine over to uh, Moab. And uh, her husband died and her uh, sons died, and she was left with whom? Her daughters-in-law, Moabite women. And uh, she was so discouraged and so depressed and so defeated by the circumstances of her life that she just said to the girls, just go home to your God. They'll your God will take care of you. Wonderful missionary attitude, I'm sure, you see. And Ruth said, no, your God is my God. Where you go, I'll go. Your God is my God forever. So in spite of Naomi's bad attitude and depressed spirit, she turned out to be, in effect, a missionary for Israel, Israel's God. That, to me, is typical of the failure of Israel to be what? concerned about, praying for, and reaching out to the Gentiles around them. I think of one man that uh, 
David and his men may have led to the Lord, a Hittite, who proved to be such a wonderful proselyte to Israel and Israel's God that he ended up being a general in David's army. David murdered him one day in order to do what? Take his wife. And I say, Lord, spare me. I, I just, I, I don't want to hear any more about it. The failure of your people, Israel. Of course, the body and bride of Christ hasn't done all that remarkably well either, has it? In terms of doctrine and truth and goals and priorities and reaching the world. But think of Israel's failures. And you see, as Paul and Barnabas hit this obstacle head on, the response was absolutely violent. And they had to use a symbolic means to say, we're finished with you people. You've heard the message, you've rejected it, and we're out of it. And what did they do? Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. By the way, they should have been glorifying the Lord for many, many years through the correct teaching of the Old Testament if they had just been properly taught by these Jews. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. I like the footnote on this statement, don't you? You see, this is the divine part. As many as were ordained to eternal life, but notice the human responsibility part, they believed. It doesn't say as many as were ordained to eternal life were saved. They had to respond. They had to believe. And so notice human responsibility in verse 49, the follow-up, and the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. It's sort of like Paul saying to Timothy, I, I'm just so burdened that uh, I am willing to endure all these things to take so that the elect might be saved. Well, why didn't he say, I'm willing to, uh, I don't need to endure anything because the elect are already saved. No, the elect are saved only if the message is somehow taken to them and they respond to it. So it's the two sides of this antinomy that cannot be rationalistically resolved by human minds. It's like Jesus explained, you remember in John 6, No man cometh unto me except God the Father draw him. That's the divine side, the divine perspective. But whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Nobody can say, well, I can't come to you because I'm not among the elect. This is infinitely beyond our comprehension and even Paul said at the end of this whole discussion of Israel and the church and responsibility and God's sovereignty, that God's ways are what? Past finding out. Like Isaiah 55, my thoughts are higher than yours, and so are my ways, says the Lord. But so delicately and so beautifully, God interweaves these two perspectives all through the Bible. And here as well. But now, the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women. Women are very prominent in Greek cities, you notice throughout the book of Acts. And Luke, the doctor who wrote the book, frequently mentions the function and significance of women in this book. Especially, we'll see that when we get to the next couple chapters of Acts. And uh, they were very influential in the city of Antioch of Pisidia. And the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. But they shook off the dust, watch this symbolic act now, they shook off the dust of their feet against them because Jesus in Luke 9, 5 said to do that. 
He said it in chapter 10, verse 11 of Luke. Give a public demonstration, a symbolic act showing that something drastic has happened to this city spiritually because of an open public rejection of God's gracious offer and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not sure if that's applicable today, friends. We can debate that point. But I can say, Lord, how shocking this must have been to all involved. How shocking. And they came to Iconium. Now, they're moving eastward, friends. This is uh, 80 or 90 miles farther east. And they're going to uh, find a city over here that is even more Greek and less influenced by Rome. Sort of an isolated but a very prosperous city, too, of that particular time. So they're following the famous Sebastian Way, which started in Ephesus, over here. We moved over here, and then finally down over here, and ultimately reached to the Euphrates River, from Ephesus to the Euphrates, named after Augustus. Sebaste would be the Greek translation for Augustus, the great emperor who did a magnificent job of paving highways all over the Roman Empire. And it, isn't it interesting how in God's providence, the highways were there to help the messengers of the gospel to speed their way around that vast empire. Well, even though there was an apparent defeat, a failure, what happened? The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Lord. It's sort of a cycle all the way through the book of Acts. Proclamation, resistance, persecution, move to the next city, proclamation, resistance, persecution, next city, on and on and on and on. Never ends. Still hasn't ended in this 21st century A.D., Chapter 14, verse 1, it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake that a great multitude, both of Jews and also of Greeks, believed. Notice some Jews in each of these cities did believe. Praise God for that. But, are you ready for this? Same routine. The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil, affected against the brethren. And wouldn't you think the next verse would say, and therefore... Paul and Barnabas fled to the next city. Now, this amazes me. How about you? Long time, therefore, abode they speaking boldly in the Lord. Now, I wonder how that can fit together. The Jewish enemies of God made the minds of the Gentiles evil affected against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time with them. That's interesting, isn't it? They weren't cowards. At times it was expedient to flee, to save their lives. Other times it was appropriate to stay. And I'm sure that day by day, prayer directed their steps, whether we flee or stay. Verse 3, they were speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony under the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, do you see where these people are, friends, right now? This is the Roman province of Galatia. 
And when Paul and Barnabas left Galatia and went back to Antioch, they heard horrible reports of compromise and defection and heresy that had crept into those churches, those groups of believers in Antioch and Iconium, and as we'll see, Lystra and Derbe, because Judaizers came. I mean, these are people who were born-again Christian Jews, showed up and said, you people have to do what? You have to keep the law, be really acceptable to God. Now, these are not unbelieving Jews. These are believing Jews now who came, you know, from Jerusalem, etc., and followed up Paul everywhere he went. And Paul had to write a very confronted letter called the Letter to the Galatians, in which he says, you know, we did signs and wonders among you, but how were you saved? By keeping the law? And you remember the powerful confrontations in that book of Galatians. That's the voice of author and professor Dr. John Whitcomb providing in-depth yet practical teaching for the book of Acts. It's volume five of a series called Acts, Witness of the Early Church. Whitcomb Ministries is indeed grateful for this opportunity to meet with you here each week. Please pray for this ministry and know that we so appreciate you listening to this Bible teaching program. We truly value your participation in our radio broadcast. Remember, you can always check our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Ministries for the news from our ministry and to share a testimony. We'll continue this sermon and this series next week. Now for all of us here at Encounter God's Truth, I'm Wayne Shepherd, praying that today's message has edified and encouraged you in your own witness for the Lord. May God bless your service for Him.